And the only way to stop, you know, getting picked on as a kid is I, I willed my way into knowing about sports. Like sports was the way that I could have a normal conversation with the bullies. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. I'm Rolf Potts, travel writer, author, teacher, and now podcaster. Today I talk with writer Todd Goldberg, whose novel Gangsterland is currently being developed into a TV show by the people who make Peaky Blinders for the BBC and Netflix. Now, since Todd is a crime novelist, we spend a fair amount of time early on talking about how to kill someone and get away with it. We also talk about depicting murder realistically and how Todd's innate sense for criminal possibilities never really turns off, even when he's having dinner with his wife. But in this episode, we mainly talk about sports, specifically sports fandom, and how the way we relate to our favorite sports teams and sports heroes as children never really goes away as adults. Let's listen in. Actually, maybe we should just jump right into the, well, yeah, jump into the interview because I think that there's a way of being in the world that is now lost, but is very, very particular to to young straight males who are also sort of outcast and have uh, strong imaginative inner lives. So uh, we'll we'll get this one rolling and then we'll we'll sort of see where it goes because um, we can sort of bloom these these seed moments from our youth into a greater discussion of (laughs) pop culture in general. So I'm gonna have to go see my therapist this week. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that'll be, we'll have a sequel when we talk to your, (laughs) when we talk to your, it'll be the post therapy follow up to the, uh, this is your, this is your life Todd Goldberg episode. So (laughs) (laughs) on that note, I'm just going to introduce you, Todd. Uh, I'm speaking with Todd Goldberg. Uh, Crime novelist Todd Goldberg, but that's sort of a limiting definition. I mean, you, you've written um, uh, Gangsterland and now Gangster Nation, uh, but you've also written literary essays, fiction, nonfiction. You run the MFA program, uh, the Low Res program uh, at Palm, at the Palm Desert program. That's you see Riverside, is that right? You Riverside, correct? Okay. Um, and and real quick, I've, I've I've sort of shanghaied my 16 year old nephew into being my intern, and he was the first person. Uh, you were the first person he researched for this. So shout, <laughs> shout out to Luke, my nephew. And like a 16 year old, he's here. Oh well, like why don't you just ask him if he was going to kill you? What, how he would do it and get away with it? And, and so, and so, because sort of, I know you from Bennington and through through these MFA circles, and sort of, I sort of know you from through other channels as well now. But um, this image came into my head, like uh, your book Gangsterland is about uh, uh, Sal Cupertine. He's a he's a Chicago. Is it a Chicago hitman? Chicago hitman. Yeah, who sort of goes into a voluntary hiding in Vegas by posing as David Cohen, a rabbi. Uh, and so I thought, could this be possible? Could there be like a, a parallel series about a guy who goes into hiding at a low res residence uh, MFA program or or a hitman who's like supposed to assassinate somebody on the faculty or student body of a low residency program? <laughs> there was actually a great book by Victor Gishler called Pistol Poets um, that involved a hitman at an MFA program somewhere in in the middle of the country. Um, that was a wonderful 
mashup of crime fiction and university life with all of the consequences and stakes inherent in both. So I'm going to leave that one for Victor Gishler. Um, you guys should get it. It's a great book. Pistol Poets. I always like Pistol Poets. Wouldn't I know? I mean, it's like that, it's like that postulate that if you, if you mention a scenario, there's probably porn for it. Well, I, I, <laughs> I, I threw out a, you know, if, if, if mention a situation and there's a campus novel genre equivalent of it. So yeah, I mean, I, I could kill you and get away with it. I mean, that's that's the thing I spend a lot of my time thinking about. And what your uh, what your nephew probably found was the me talking about the genesis for this character, which was I was driving down um, a street not far from where I live, where there's an old Native American cemetery, and I live in, uh, in near Palm Springs, and I've been driving by the cemetery my entire teenage and then adult life, and I'd never seen anyone walk out of it. It's just, an, it's, you know, it's a very old cemetery. And I was stopped at a stoplight and, <coughs> excuse me, and I saw someone walk out of the cemetery. And I was like, who is that? And what are they doing in there? And then I thought, man, you know, if you wanted to kill someone and get away with it, what you do is you'd kill them, you'd put them in a casket, and you'd bury them in an old cemetery that no one visits. And... As soon as I had that thought, I was like, oh, wait a minute. There's something there. What if it was a current cemetery? What if someone was using the cemetery to launder bodies and launder money? Well, who would that person be? How would they get in that role? What priest would actually do this? And so, and this has all happened over the space of like 25 seconds as I was parked in front of the cemetery. And that's where this idea of a hitman who hides out as a rabbi came from where I'd have a fake rabbi doing rabbinical things like burying people in the cemetery, but also overseeing fake burials of people that essentially they are burying for organized crime families. And that was part of the genesis of gangster land. And, and it's part of gangster nation as well. So, so as a crime novelist, uh, your instincts are to look at anomalous situations and figure out how they can be used to facilitate murder. Yeah, I mean, I'm always looking at things and, and seeing the con that's inherent in it. I mean, I've written, I've written 14 books, I think, at this point, and not all of them were crime novels, but all of them had some some aspect of crime in it. And so, I'm always looking at the world in that way of, well, if someone wanted to get over on you, they could really get over on you. Like the other night, um, my wife and I were at dinner, and. Um, Someone valeted our car and took our name down. It was at a hotel. And they said, oh, are you staying here? I said, no, we're not staying here. We're just here for dinner. And they said, okay. They took took my name, took my car, parked it. We went in for dinner. Our reservation was at 7. And I was like, if this person were enterprising at all, they'd know that I'm going to be in this hotel eating dinner from approximately 7 to 8.30. They have my car. They know I'm not staying here, so they know that I'm local. They can open my glove box, look at my registration. They can call their buddy. Say, hey, you've got 90 minutes to break into this house and have everything. And like that's the human contract that we make is, oh, I'm going to let this dude park my car believing that he's not a bad guy. Well, I believe everyone is a bad guy. <laughs> so, so you're saying that this was a business write-off, that like business expenses are everywhere for you. Yeah, this is – I'm totally taking this as a tax write-off. There was a thing that I did years and years ago where I wrote a book with another writer named Andrew Corrali called Horny Las Vegas – where we went around to strip clubs and sex shops all over Vegas and wrote about them. Is it a travel guidebook? It's a travel guidebook. And 
that year I got to take lap dances off of my taxes. <laughs> Some somewhere somebody's taking furious notes right now. <laughs> Don't do as I do. Some, do as I did. <laughs> So, some enterprising 20-year-old has just decided that they want to go into journalism themselves. Right. So, <laughs> so you contain multitudes. Well, I, another thing, and, and, and this is the Deviate uh, with Rolf Potts podcast, and I do want to deviate at some point, but another thing that struck me on reading Gangsterland is just how there's a lot of brutal violence in that. You know, there's murder mm-hmm. as well. And so I think scenarios for human darkness and... Um, pragmatic ways to dispose of bodies can come out of reverie while you're driving past a cemetery or, or getting your car valet parked. Right. Uh, do you study the specifics of, of true crime? Like, like how you specifically talk about how certain acts of brutality are being carried out by horrible yeah, people? I do. And I do it for a specific reason, which is that, and this is something that happened to me, I don't know, five or six years ago before I wrote Gangsterland, um, after I had spent, a few years writing um, the burn notice books, which is that I began to feel a little bit guilty for the amount of violence and um, shiny glamorization of violence I was putting in my books and how I could shoot someone in a book and not ever show the ripples or someone could get strangled and I'd never show the ripples out from it. And I don't know if it's the onset of morality in me or what it, what it was, but I began to feel like if I'm going to write about violence I'm going to show it for what it actually is. I'm going to show the brutality of it and the messiness of it and the physiological and psychological damage it it does to not just the person who does it or the person it's committed upon, but for the survivors of the person that died. And so in Gangsterland, I began to sort of apply this idea that if I'm going to have Sal Cooper team, David Cohen, shoot a guy in the back of the head, well, that doesn't always turn out right. Sometimes you shoot a guy in the back of the head and they turn their head and you end up blowing off half of their face and they're still alive because you don't need your jaw to survive. So you can survive by blowing off your face. And I wanted to make it visceral and real. And I wanted to to show what that was like for the people doing the job and what it was like for the person surviving it. So I did a ton of research for that. Uh, in fact, um, the thing I just explained, the shooting yourself and then taking off half your face accidentally or someone shooting you. Uh, a couple years ago, um, my wife and I were living in a different house than we live in now, but in a gated community. I live in um, outside Palm Springs, as I said, so everyone lives in gated communities, which is absurd because if we all live in a gated community, what's the use of having a gate? Um, <laughs> but nevertheless, there was a real estate agent who lived up the street from us, and he had sold my mom a house and I used to see him all the time because he'd piss me off because he would he'd leave his garbage cans in front of his house for like five days. And I would always be like, God, that guy, Paul, one of these days I'm going to say something about him pulling in his, his garbage cans. It's a pain in the ass to look out my window and see his garbage cans. I mean, like of all the stupid, trivial things I could care about is someone's garbage cans on the street. At any rate. First world problems. <laughs> total first world. Not even a first world problem. It's just like gated community problem. God damn it. You're leaving your garbage cans. <laughs> So he, it turns out, was in a relationship with another real estate agent. And something turned sour in their relationship and they broke up. And they ended up, however, periodically being in the same place at the same time because they were real estate agents showing houses. And they ended up being in a house across the street from mine. And at the same time, 
alone, no one else was in the house, and Paul ended up murdering the female real estate agent and then attempting to kill himself by putting a gun in his mouth and blowing out the back of his head. But frequently what happens is if people put a gun in their mouth to shoot out the back of their head, they don't take into consideration that their hand is going to jerk when they shoot the gun. And what happens is they just blow their cheek off, which is exactly what happened to this guy. He put gun in his mouth, fired, and just blew his cheek off, um, which is great because someone then found him, and it wasn't a murder-suicide. It was a murder, an attempted suicide, and the guy's now in prison for the rest of his life. But I thought about that thing that happened, and it, it was a block away from me in this gay community. I didn't hear the gunshots. All we heard was the sirens um, when they found the bodies. And that's the thing like I try to show like this is the reality is not what you see on TV where there's a gunfight and it's, you know, everyone's an assassin and they're picking each other off. People are terrible shots. People are not professional killers. They don't know what they're doing most of the time with a gun. And I want to I want to show that I want to show the reality of that situation. Yeah, it, it reminds me, I, I dated a nurse years ago uh, and she talked about sometimes suicides will use a shotgun and they'll tilt their head back. They'll put it under their chin and tilt their he head back. And then pretty soon. They're they're not shooting anything that is keeping them alive. You know, they're right. just, they're, they're destroying facial features. It's it's a it's a it's a really unnerving thing to think about. But that's interesting that like your duty as a crime novelist is to underscore this this reality. I, I remember the discussion when Reservoir Dogs came out years ago. The discussion of how bloody it was and how mm -hmm. how you could see the violence. Um, but I can see, actually, just in my own experience of reading Gangsterland, I mean, you're you're sort of a funny guy. I know you as a happy-go-lucky guy. And then, so it's like, oh, okay, you know, a gangster is a rabbi, you know. This, and then, okay, got in a little bit to the book, and it's like, okay, this isn't a complete load of laughs. And then when the <laughs> when the, when the when when Sal Cooper Cooperteen slash David Cohen starts doing his business, it's like, holy shit, you know. But in a way, that proves your point, you know that. I was in reading Gangsterling. I was I was taken aback by the brutality of the violence. Your point being that that's exactly how it is played out in real life. Yeah, and even more so in the sequel, Gangster Nation, which is um, which is out now. You know, he's been Sal Cupertino has been David Cohen in Gangster Nation now for two years when the book opens up. So he's more rabbi than he is hitman. And there's a point where he has to kill someone in that book, and he's out of practice. And he kills, um, I won't spoil the book for anyone, but he, he kills someone using his bare hands. And killing someone with your bare hands is, is not like shooting someone from a distance. Killing people, if you're not a sociopath, changes you. Um, it, it has a lingering effect on you as a, as a human being. And so in Gangster Land, I start that. In Gangster Nation, I continue it. But at the same time, I'm also looking at the way spiritual enlightenment changes a person as well. And those things huh. do not exactly go hand in hand, you know, spiritual enlightenment and the willingness or desire to kill somebody. Interesting. Yeah, I have I have yet to read uh, Gangster Nation. Uh, is that is that going to be a TV show? Did I read the TV? Writers? Yeah. Yeah, we, we sold the television rights to uh, the folks who make the show Peaky Blinders on uh, on Netflix and the BBC, and uh, mm -hmm. we are in the process of uh, of development right now, so I'm hoping for some good news sometime soon, but it could be that nothing ever happens. Right now, it feels like something will happen, but we'll see what happens. Yeah, no, that, yeah, it, it feels like, I, I've talked to people who have had their projects developed before, and it seems like it doesn't happen. 
as often or more than it does happen, but it's an exciting process. Would you, are you involved in the writing or, or direct development on this or is it all given um, over to other people? I, uh, I don't want to adapt my own work. Um, I can barely read my work after I write it, <laughs> but I am, I am a consultant on it. And so, um, I'm in pretty direct conversation with the producers right now on the project. And what's great is that they want my, they want my input. And then you know that I'm going to write more books or at least another book with this character. And so, you know, we don't, I don't think any of us want to do something that ends up deviating too wildly from what I'm going to end up doing for what I view as the conclusion of this trilogy. Um, that being said, if they make a TV show, you know, I could probably write 12 more books. <laughs> right. I, I could probably add a dragon. I could. Uh... Well, I was going to say, it's a George R.R. R. Martin problem, right? You know, that pretty soon you're trying to outpace the television show. Yeah, and that's not going to happen. I mean, it, it takes me a year and a half to write um, to write one of these books. And, you know, I take chunks of time off. I, I finished writing. So Gangster Nation came out in September. And I didn't turn in the final draft of it until until April of 2017. And, uh, which was late. That's actually. a fast turnaround. Yeah, I was late. Okay. I, was, I don't know if you heard, uh, Donald Trump had been like president that sort of affected <laughs> my creative process. Um, I think so I've I read was, about him somewhere. Yeah. I was a little late because of terrible sinking depression that the world was going to end. Um, so I, like, I haven't written a creative word in like six months, but I intend to. I intend to very soon. <laughs> well, under that umbrella, you say creative word. Does that include essays? Like, uh, because you have, you're more, and I, I want to touch, I, I think our, uh, I want to ask you about uh, When They Let Them Bleed, which is an essay mm -hmm. uh, that I've taught in my classes before. Does that count as creative work or is that separate from your Gangsterland stuff? Yeah, that, that does count. So in that way, I, I have written, I wrote, um, I wrote a long piece for the Los Angeles Times after the um, the shooting in Las Vegas when uh, oh, the guy man. killed all those people and shot all those people in Las Vegas. Because um, my books take place in Vegas. I lived in Las Vegas. Um, I was a columnist for a newspaper in Las Vegas for many years. And so I have a, a pretty deep connection to that city. Um, and so I wrote a, a fairly long piece on sort of the history of violence in Las Vegas and what we abide and what we abet, um, you know, the, the, the things that, that we're willing to look the other way to so that we can go have a good time in that city. And the fact of the matter is, particularly in Las Vegas, that it is a town that is built on the backs of criminals and killers. And it's something that we conveniently look away from when we're there doing whatever it is we're doing, you know, playing blackjack or seeing a show or, or whatever it might be. But the very streets that you're driving on in Las Vegas are streets paved by killers. And so I wrote a bit about that for Las Vegas, about Las Vegas um, shortly after the, the, uh, the, the terrible shooting. So I did that and I've written some other little essays um, as well, but I haven't embarked on another book project, um, but I'm looking forward to it. I, you know, I'm, I'm just about ready to start sitting my butt down in a chair and working um, at a steady pace again, <laughs> pretty soon. I think right around January, I'll, I'll start something new. Well, there's there's teaching too. I mean, does teaching and running the the MFA program does that slow you down writing wise, or is that compartmentalized enough that it's not an issue? You know, it actually I think it creates natural deadlines for me um, because if I you know the, the job that I have, so I, I founded and direct this program. So I, there's there's the tangible weight of I have a hundred graduate students 
and I teach, I usually teach four or five uh, per quarter. And then I have about 20 faculty that I'm in charge of and, you know, these residencies that I create, but also I feel a debt to each student that this is the place that I founded. It's the place that I'm in charge of. They put their faith in me to teach them well and to open the doors for them that I've promised I will get open for them. And I can't do a bad job doing Mm. that because other people's livelihood and lives depend on the promises that I've made, that this is a program that um, if you go through it and you put the time and the effort in, it's going to bear fruit. So knowing that I have to do these things, that I'm not going to half-ass my way through someone else's life forces my writing time to be more productive. So if I know, okay, I've got three hours to write today because I got to go to this meeting and I got to read my student work and I need to, you know, have this conversation, that conversation, whatever it might be. There's a lot less opportunity for me to sit down and just update my Facebook with Jason Isbell songs all night long. (laughs) Not to say I don't do that also, but (laughs) it does, it does create a natural, driving motivation to be productive when I'm ready to write. Well, it's interesting that a lot of the creative people I've talked to for this podcast already uh, will talk about how, yeah, you you are going to fill that space with dipshit social media stuff or yeah. other distractions. Anyway, I was talking to Tom Bissell, who you might know, and talking about how fatherhood has created that structure for him, that there are times he didn't realize how much time he wasted in the wealth of writing time he had before fatherhood. And so I would imagine uh, your job with the MFA program. And and I actually respect what you just said. I think the cliche of MFA programs is teachers who are sort of punching their, their time clock because they need to make money while they're working on their next project. Right. Um, and as the son of teachers, I've always been frustrated by the fact that people don't take it uh, vocationally. So I respect what you said about taking it vocationally. I, I really do. And, you know, we all know professors. We, we've had some professors, certainly, who were just punching a clock. Um and, and maybe if I were at a different part of my life or if I if my name wasn't on this program, if I were just an employee and not the director, maybe I'd feel differently. But I don't I don't have kids. And for me, the success of these students, that's going to be a, a longer legacy for me than, you know, a short story collection <laughs> that I published in 2005. You know, this is a this is a human connection. These are these are living, breathing human beings. And I think, you know, what, what Tom says is absolutely true. I mean, I, and he really spent a lot of his free time doing stuff like playing video games. But he also has a career from playing video games. Um, but for me, you know, I, I want to spend my free time, you know, with my wife and doing the things that I really enjoy and not wishing during that free time that I was sitting in a chair and writing. And that's, that's um, a change that has come later on in my life that, to to recognize that to be creative you also have to live you know you have to you have to exist on this planet a little bit yeah it's interesting you know, speaking of the 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 t and i say that's interesting that's my tick as an interview i say it, that's interesting i need to learn how to stop saying that anyway um <laughs> that's boring <laughs> right well maybe i'm interested in too many things but uh you skyped my classes to talk about your essay at least once you know mm-hmm. and, and sort of drawing on your own experiences the idea of and and this might not be completely in line. I don't know in your nonfiction how much you draw on your your adult life versus your life as a younger man. And and your essay, which I have taught in many classes uh, in in the East Coast and then in in Paris, uh, it's sort of it's it's really about the death of your mother. But content wise, it's eighty five percent about 
the death of a boxer in right. in Las Vegas, actually, mm-hmm. um, when you were much, much younger. And an interesting thing when you were, there's that word again, interesting, um, that when you were, when we Skyped you in, uh, it's this very harrowing essay about a very unhappy time in your life. Uh, but my students were, somehow you made my students laugh the whole time. Uh, and it, it actually brought out a lot of brave writing. There's another word that you is pr- probably overused in, in uh, regard to personal nonfiction. Uh, but just the idea that you can write about something very serious and uh, yet speak with it, uh, speak about it in a way that isn't necessarily as, as serious as it is on the page, I think really relaxed my students. So uh, all these years later, I, I thank you for that. Um, but let's jump into that essay itself, because one thing, th- this is our deviation. We, um, <laughs> I, I, I think with Todd, you know, this is the deviate. Uh, with Rolf Potts' podcast, but I think with Todd, we could deviate into any number of things. But one thing that interested me about that essay was the way at a certain age in American history, young, lonely boys could get an issue of Sports Illustrated and sort of live a fantasy life through it. Mm -hmm. Or... Uh, you know, maybe watch Wide World of Sports on the weekend and 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 sort of connect to the world through that. And then later on, there was MTV. There were other ways in which America's pop culture world in the 70s, 80s, 90s informed the lives of, of real people in an interesting way. And and so I think it's it's interesting that in choosing to write about the death of your mother and dealing with that, you talked about the death of a boxer that happened on TV. Yeah, so the the essay that you're speaking of, When They Let Them Bleed, is about Ray Boom Boom Mancini killing Duke Koo Kim um, in, in the ring, which was a, a really seminal event for me as a kid. And I think it has played a role in my life beyond just that essay. Um, because that was the first person I saw like a living person who got killed and he didn't die right away. It took him a couple days to die, but he was dead by the time he hit the ground in, in that, in that fight for the most part, he was brain dead. Um, but to witness that kind of brutality as sport, I think that's played a role in, in the way I talk about violence. Now that, you know, the way we're just speaking about it as it relates to my books a moment ago, but as a kid, you know, I was a weird little kid. Um, I was profoundly dyslexic, um, profoundly colorblind. I was overweight. I was unhappy. My parents were divorced. and My dad was dating the woman who hosted Romper Room. And she never said my name when looking in the mirror. She'd be like, like I see Xavier. Like, you see Xavier? What about Todd? Todd's a normal man. You see Todd? Um and, you know, my dad was on TV news, but we didn't actually see him in our real life. My mom was a, a society columnist and was sort of this local celebrity, but we she wasn't really present in our lives other than as a malevolent force. And the only way to stop, you know, getting picked on as a kid is I, I willed my way into knowing about sports. Like sports was the way that I could have a normal conversation with the bullies, you know, with, with the kids that wanted to beat me up at recess because, you know, I just wanted to read books, even though I couldn't read yet or tell my little stories using my action figures. Um, but at some point around age 10, when I started getting sports illustrated and all these things, um, I had an epiphany that I gotta, I gotta learn how to play soccer. 
Um, I, cause I can't catch to save my life cause my, my dyslexia is so bad that I have spatial problems. Um, but I can kick, um, and I can run. So I'm going to learn how to play soccer and I'm going to, I'm going to learn everything about every athlete on earth and memorize the information. So when some bully wants to fight me and he's wearing a, you know, a 49ers hat or Jersey or whatever, I can say something about, you know, about Bill Ring, who was a terrible running back for the 49ers when I was a kid. Um, but in a larger way, too, being becoming fascinated with athletes when I was a little kid and reading all about them was fantasy. It was wish fulfillment. I knew I would never be like that person, but I could root for, for Ricky Henderson. And when I rooted for Ricky Henderson, I was Ricky Henderson, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Like I identified with Ricky Henderson, so therefore I could be like that. Yeah, I think as a kid, you know that you're not going to be Ricky Henderson. Um, I had Willie Wilson. He was the Royals fast oh, guy. Yeah. 83 stolen bases one year. Yeah, yeah. And it, and it's funny how those those numbers can come back up. Uh, and it's it, it's interesting. You mention it. And so you, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's like almost this deliberate way, like your research project to identify with, uh, with the dragon, you know, with, mm-hmm. the, with the people who would torment you. For me, it was a little different. I was, um, I don't know, there, bullies came into play, but uh, I think for me, I was just, I was shy in a way that it didn't, it didn't occur to me to talk to people. You know, mm-hmm. like, like my parents were afraid I would never make friends because I would just sort of hang out by myself and, uh, you know, amuse myself with leaves right. or balls or whatever. And so <laughs> it, it, it was also a social thing. To, talking for a living. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, that, that's something we could touch on, too. You know, does do these does an, um, uh, a childhood that is situationally imaginative lend yourself to, towards towards a more creative life? Because um because again, I, I wasn't shy for bully reasons, but I was shy just because it didn't occur to me that I should be talking to, to other kids. And so, you know, eventually, right. eventually I came into my own, but I sort of had to figure out how to, oh, it's like, well, yeah, you should say hi to people. I mean, this is literally a thing and, and maybe you should ask them how their day was, and even if you don't care. And so in a way, um, sports was better than small talk when it came to identifying right. with, with, uh, with other kids my age. And there were certain... Like I didn't come from a home with a Sports Illustrated uh, subscription, but I remember the magazine going around, and I remember sports cards going around, and friends mm-hmm. having sports cards, and um, and I and and, and figuring out, trying to think of is, is it right if I steal this Roger Staubach because I really want this Roger Staubach, you know, the quarterback of the Dallas Cowboys type thing, and so I think in a, in a way, and maybe for young ten year olds now, there's there's an equivalent. But, but maybe not. It, it could be an old analog way of being in the world that you really you really navigate things. It's fun to think about, um, but it gives you something to, to talk about with, with other kids at school. And it gives you something to think about, too. I, you know, I don't right. know if it crossed the line for you from a way to negotiate bullies into a way that really, really became an internalized thing. But I oh, would. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and that's 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 in when they let them bleed is that I became obsessed with sports and athletes and memorizing memorizing was my thing um like knowing who won the al batting title in 1970 alex johnson of uh, the california angels um, wow. and hit 319 and it was a total coping mechanism because i would go into my bedroom i would close the door and I would have, you know, a stack of Sports Illustrated magazines, and I'd have a stack of sport magazines. Remember sport magazine? 
yeah. and then I also I subscribe to Soccer Digest and NBA Digest and NFL Digest. So I got those little Digest magazines also. I had them all. Um, and when my mom would be out in the hallway going crazy and screaming and throwing stuff around, my mom had this unique uh, super talent where she would defrost meat on the counter. This is in the era where, where you defrosted meat uncovered on a counter, covered in Italian dressing. And she would get angry about whatever it was, and she would take the defrosting meat and she would throw it at you, whoever you were. <laughs> Um, which is funny, but it's also horrifying. Right. Sorry. Sorry to laugh, but <laughs> no, no, it's good. It's, it's it's really fun. like when when my siblings and I get together, you know, someone will be will say something, you know, to tease the other person, and one of us will be like, "I'm going to go find a flank steak and I'm going to throw it at you." <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just it's absurd. My mom would just throw things, and she, there's often defrosting flank steaks, and she pick up you know semi frozen meat and throw it at my brother Lee, which would then both ruin the meal. And get her point across. But so she'd be out there throwing roasts at my brother. And I'd be sitting in my room, like, numbing myself with, you know, facts and figures about Ray Boom Boom Mancini. Or memorizing who the ranked Walter Rodates were. Um, you know, and getting obsessed with whether or not Mark Breland was going to become the next Sugar Ray Leonard and worried that someone was going to ask me about these things. And so I had to know all this information. So it it became a total obsession for me um, for a really long time. And, you know, it, it's funny now. My um, I still like to watch sports a great deal, but obviously I didn't have as much time to obsess on the, the stats. But my wife will be like, do you think the Oakland Raiders are upset when you have a, ba a bad riding day compared to how upset you are that they're four and six right now? And I'm like, it doesn't matter. And then I also, it's like, I, like all I'm rooting for is a shirt color, which is absurd. Well, yeah, <laughs> actually, yeah, that, that's an old Seinfeld joke. The idea that we're rooting for the clothing, you know, they trade right. players are traded away so quickly. As an aside, you must have loved the Chiefs game this year because that was like probably the biggest emotional moment of the season so yes. far. It was that, that saved me a great deal of uh, sadness and anger that was only replaced the following week when they lost. <laughs> as, right. Yeah. Well, the, the Chiefs are in a funk right now. But but as a side note, it's you mentioned emotional relationships to sports. And of course, your wife is has a perfectly valid point. But um, I went like I actually wrote an essay about the emotional experience of rooting for your team after they win the World Series and then go 81 and 81. Right. Right. And like I think most people don't care about that. But somehow it was very important to me that the Royals had won the 2015 World Series and they had gone was average as they could be the following year. But uh, to, to complete this aside, I'm not the same kind of Chiefs fan that I am a Royals fan because when I was a little kid, the Chiefs were terrible and I got right. used to them losing. Whereas in, in the late 70s, the Royals were really good. Uh, and so my emotional relationship with the Royals is more emotionally fraught because at a very early age, I just they were like the TV show with a, with a happy ending until they played right. the Yankees in the playoffs. Until they played the Yankees in the playoffs. <laughs> Uh, well, you know, what's what's ironic is I just realized this uh, looking down at myself. Uh, so Rolf and I can see each other because we're Skyping. But those of you in uh, Listenerville camp, I'm actually wearing a Golden State Warriors T-shirt right now that says home of the champions, dubs, <laughs> Oakland, California on it because I'm a huge Golden State Warriors fan and they sucked my entire life. 
<laughs> except for one year in 1976 when I was five and didn't really remember it. But they have sucked my entire life, and now they're great. They're the best team on the planet. And so I've got like 50 Golden State Warriors t-shirts. <laughs> and forever my wife is like, did you buy another Golden State Warriors t-shirt? And I was like, they haven't been good for 43 years. I'm going to relish this period of time in my life. And I'm going to have all the shirts to call them champions that I couldn't wear my entire childhood. And she's like, hey, what? okay, that makes me happy. Buy all of them. Well, no, no, that that's a thing is that my, my small collection of Royals ephemera is now a museum in my spare bedroom. Like my, my guests who stay over have to look at a bunch of 2015 World Series bobbleheads and tickets and programs and little framed collages of me and my dad at the games, you know. And, but, I, but I think this might really tie in to how this started is that for some reason, and I think it, it's something that maybe people like your wife or grown women in general can make fun of, you know, with, with rightful cause. But for in real time, our emotional shit, our emotional relationship with these sports that 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 manifest themselves in sort of neurotic ways as adults, so that when the Raiders do lose, that it can ruin your day. I think it starts with that relationship as uh, that that we cultivate as as little boys who who are using sports to uh, to relate to the world. And I'm not saying I'm not saying that everyone uh, who is in the sports stadium with their with their paint. Uh, with their face painted, you know, had a bad childhood, and I didn't even have a bad childhood. But but uh, I th I think it's curious that uh, you know that that I had you clearly. I didn't. I wasn't from a steak throwing family. Uh, no, no, no. Right. we didn't have steaks. Flank steak. Okay, Let's be clear. Uh, it's, a, it's a second tier uh, meat. A, a marinated just... steak. By by the way, did you pick it up and pick the lint off, or and eat it, or was it done? Well, th so here was the other problem: is we had dogs. And so my mom would throw, it wasn't cooked, it was marinating yeah, yeah. In, in Italian dressing, always in Italian dressing, Bernstein's Italian dressing. She'd throw it, you know, it'd hurl off the wall, bounce off my brother, land on the ground, and then Sam, the dog, would come in and you know, run off with the, with the second tier meat. That was, that was a, it was a nightmare. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I mean, this is almost like a literary anthology, although those those don't exist anymore. In the 90s, this could have been a literary anthology of like uh, sports fans from dysfunctional families, a, a memoir <laughs> anthology. Uh, but but I do think that there's probably a spectrum of fandom that you, you, you sit five guys on a couch on Super Bowl Sunday and they all are emotionally vested in the game, but maybe they all related to sports as young men in different ways. Like for, for mm -hmm. me, like I was a shy kid who it didn't occur to somebody to say a nice weather we're having, but I could say, you know, well, how, how about that Roger Staubach? You know, right. what do you think about Tony Dorsett? You know, he just came up from Pitt. I think, he, you know, he's going to be a game changer. Um and then, then you might have someone who was a complete extrovert as a child. I don't know. I'm, I'm thinking out loud here about. I, I don't, maybe we're we're, we're I'm trying to figure out a way to excuse the uh, you know sort of the emotional midgetry of the adult male sports fan in America. <laughs> but but certainly it has maybe it has something to do with this these emotional lives we attach to sports a, as young people. Yeah, you know, I, I can't imagine actually um, getting into a sport fervently as an adult. It just doesn't make any sense. Like deciding at some point, you know what? I'm going to start following the professional Ultimate Frisbee League. I'm going to like I'm gonna get the shirts. I'm going to go to the games. It just doesn't make any sense. And in fact, part of that might be why I'm not into hockey. There wasn't a hockey mm. team in the Bay Area when I was a kid. 
and I just I never got into it. I should because I like soccer and I like basketball, and you know it's basically the speed of basketball on a short um, soccer field on ice. Um, that's there. There's your explanation of what hockey is if you're <laughs> right. listening, and you're from Mars. Um, but like I just I I can't imagine getting invested in it now. But I think there's also something to be said for um, for identifying yourself as a thing when you're early on. You know, when you're when you're 10, 11, 12, 13 years old, and you identify yourself with a football team, and, and I mean, and this is you see this actually in uh, gangs and where they you know they adopt the logo or the colors of a particular sports team um, that has some sort of background. So the the, the fact that course in the 80s and the early 90s that um gangsters in 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 southern california adopted the silver and black of the raiders and then the silver and black of the la kings as their iconography it projected a sense of being a badass that hadn't been earned like these gangsters are walking around they're 16 years old and in fact they are trading on the fact that lyle alzado tackled a lot of people with a broken leg while high on steroids basically (laughs) Um, at least steroids. At least steroids. at the very minimum. <laughs> Probably, you know, all kinds of stuff. Um, so you see that, and you see that identification with um, with kids today, with wearing you know the clothing of whatever team has won a championship. That I'm representing this, or I'm representing that. Um, identifying with those things means something when you don't have an identity of your own. When, you, when you're not proud of the life that you're leading, but you can say, yeah, well, but I. You know, when I wear this shirt, I'm representing Kobe Bryant or I'm representing Michael Jordan or whatever it might be. And that's not too far from imagining myself as Ricky Henderson as a kid. I just didn't have the clothing. Um, well, that has but, been. But doing it at 40, like like saying, oh, I'm I'm now I'm I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm Ryan Braun of the Milwaukee Brewers. Well, actually, maybe I'm close to Ryan Braun. I'm sort of Jewy. He's Jewy. <laughs> he probably can't really play baseball without drugs. I couldn't play baseball without drugs. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think sometimes uh, adult sports is characterized as as adults get really into their fandom because they have hard lives, you know, or they're, mm-hmm. they're, they're shoveling shit for a living. They're, that, that somehow in the in the in the pecking order of late capitalism, they uh, are lower on the rung, but they but at least they have whatever the the Oakland Raiders or the New England Patriots. Right. Um, and and again, I'm not sure. I, I'm sure there's an entire sociological research industry that could be uh, lassoed to research all of the, the connection between you, one's adult life situation and the fantasy aspect of of having a team to root for versus the difficulties of childhood and having a team to root for. One thing, thing, thing that I thought about as you, as you were talking about this is that I was actually good at sports, but I was not good at a super cool sport. I was fast. I, I was good mm-hmm. at track, right? But yet I, as an adult... I don't know if this is a concrete versus abstract thing is that like I had so many experiences and I ran, I ran so many miles that I will never run back. I ran track in high school and college. I was good at it. It's a good line. You shouldn't right. waste it on the podcast. Write that one down. <laughs> right. I, I, I feel like uh, I stole that from somebody, but, uh, um, but I, I don't like my relation. I don't follow track. You know, I, I don't go like I was a 1500 runner. We finally won a gold medal in the Olympics this year in the 1500. And I didn't, I, it, it was two days before I realized that it had happened, you know, yet. Do you remember the superstars, by the way, on ABC? 
where it would be like, you know, Ronaldo Nehemiah and Edwin Moses and versus me, Joe Green running through obstacle courses oh, and swimming yeah. and all that stuff. Oh, yeah. That was sort of a pre-American uh, Gladiators yeah. uh, no, athletes. novelty <laughs> sports show. Right. Yes. Uh, of No, I totally. God. Ronaldo I, Nehemiah was like, that's how I, I learned about hurdling because Ronaldo Nehemiah kept winning the superstars because he could hurdle the high wall. It was like, you know, you had to jump over a giant wall and, and he could jump to the top, you know, without touching it. That, that's one of those things. These days, U.S. track and field, they would never let their track stars no. do some dipshit. No, no, no. Like, like, I imagine somebody blowing out a hamstring or something, climbing yeah. climbing some quasi-Japanese game show type <laughs> obstacle course. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so YouTube has to be a wealth of ill-advised, you know, game shows back when instead of just throwing like random CrossFit people onto an obstacle course, they would put actual athletes onto some complete but, shitbird ab- obstacle course. And then the corollary to the superstars was, of course, the battle of the network stars, which is when they would have the TV stars doing the same things that the superstars had done. And Scott Baio, man, you did, you if you're going to do battle of the network stars, you want Scott Baio on your team because he was he was a goddamn American athlete. That's was, Scott Baio. Did, did they let uh, Mark Harmon play? Because he was on he was on he TV. Was a, yeah, he was a quarterback. I don't. He was a quarterback for UCLA. I don't know if Mark Harmon did, but. You know, it would be like Scott Bayo versus Robert Conrad, and Robert Conrad smoking, <laughs> and Scott Bayo would be, you know, swimming and jumping over stuff because Scott Bayo was like nineteen, and Robert Conrad was like seventy and fought in Korea. You know, so <laughs> right. I, I really wonder if if part of what we latched onto when we were young is is tied into marketing. I think it's interesting that your your memories of Edwin Moses are from this weird game show version. Of of competition instead well, I also of actual winning the four forty hurdles, I right? right. <laughs> well, I, in a way, I'm trying to explain my own lack of fandom. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Again, I'm, I'm thinking out loud, loud because when I wrote my um, my Sears catalog essay, which you know was was an episode of this podcast last month, I realized by reading the Sears catalog that the NFL was was strongly branded through the Sears catalog, and part mm-hmm. of the reason why I love the NFL. Um, was because it was part of my wish list every year when I was five or six years old. And so I'm I'm just wondering if part of why that's part of our youth is that the the NFL finally started branding that. I mean, did you, this is an aside about hockey, but did you, what was your emotional relationship to the 1980 Olympics at Lake Placid when we beat the Russians in hockey? Oh, huge. So that's the difference is that I love the Olympics and okay. I like I, I didn't realize the Winter Olympics were this year. I just saw a commercial for it and I was like, I need to change my schedule. I can't go out of town. Um, but I remember vividly that period. But of course, in my mind, I watched it live. But that's not true because none of us watched it live. It was recorded mm. and we saw it like nine hours later or something like that. Because didn't they not? And it, or no, it wasn't the gold medal game. In my mind, it's the gold medal game, but yeah. it's not the gold medal game. We beat Iceland or Sweden or whatever it was for the gold medal. We just happened to beat the Russians in that game before the gold medal game. Um, but I remember it being hugely emotional and hugely important. And, you know, do you believe in miracles? Yes. And I can I still know the names of the guys on the team, you know, uh, Craig and uh, Arizoni and like all those guys. And then the all the backstory. You know, like right. small town, mill town guys and, you know, never was guys. And, you know, like the whole mythology of it, I remember this clear as day. And you know what? The other thing, Rolf, is somewhere in my garage, I have the Sports Illustrated 
with them on the cover. And I think it's, if I remember, it's them, all of them lined up looking into the sky, or maybe it's just the goalie Craig with the... With J- the Jim Craig with his Jim, American with flag? Yeah. Oh, with the medal. And, and the flag. It might just be Jim Craig on the cover. I've got it somewhere in my garage that I've had since I was nine years old. Because I'm one of those people who has kept like whatever I could that I thought was historical for my entire life. So I've got all that crap somewhere. Well, maybe this is our fifth PhD project. Because in retrospect, I'm trying to think <laughs> why that was so emotionally satisfying. You know, Because I think, one, unlike the dream team of, what was it, 92? Like, right. We knew those guys were going to win basketball. America always yes. won in basketball. And in fact, the reason why the 1972 Olympics was so upsetting in basketball when the Russians beat us is because we were supposed to win. We invented that sport, although the Canadians do claim uh, Naismith for, for, <laughs> for his own. Uh, but then also, but it was it, it, there's sort of this Cold War aspect to it. But it's right. like, well, we sort of had the upper hand in the Cold War. Uh, but maybe, was it maybe Jimmy Carter era malaise or something? Like, I, I, I don't know why of all these sporting events, because I wasn't a hockey guy, but somehow right. for little boys in 1980... The Americans winning the gold over the Soviets in hockey was huge. It's like suddenly right. we played we played hockey in, in gym class with our we played floor hockey in gym class, and it was again going into that reverie where suddenly mm-hmm. we we are Jim Craig, we are Mike Ruzioni, right? And it's a really strange thing because I think um, you know for me that whole era is reminiscent of um, being clouded by the uh the hostages like i think of the olympics as being at the same time as the hostage crisis and i guess it probably was because um they were released in january of 1980 right well 1981 because it was reagan's inauguration right right right? so reagan was inaugurated in 81 he won the presidency in 80 and it was like 444 days though yeah uh and so it would have covered the winter olympics right so I had forgotten my, that. Yeah, so in my mind, it's all connected to like watching, staying up late and watching Nightline, and and you know, like the the images from um, from Iran and from the hostages being taken, all that stuff. And there was, you know, that sense of futility that comes with having, you know, people of ours stuck somewhere else, and all this Cold War shit going on, all these things that were combined with each other. Um, and so it was also like dinner table conversation, you know, whoever my mom was dating at the time and, and invariably it was some guy with a perm, um, you know, talking about, you gotta get those people out or, you know, we gotta beat the Russians. All of it is of a, is of a piece to me at that time. And so beating the Russians in that, it was like a, like a swelling national pride for, for all of us at nine years old. And you'd think that would have got me deeply into hockey, but like it was over with and I was like, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, no, I, in my mind, I think I literally was thinking, well, in 20 years, well, with all these kids, all these 10 year olds are going to grow up thinking, you know, obsessing about hockey and just imagine in the year 2004, how good our hockey team will be. Well, you know, we, we haven't. The, the states hasn't won a gold medal in hockey since, have they? They won I think silver, so. I think. They won the silver. Yeah, but no, and you know, I think the um, all of it sort of being tied up into this idea of nationalism. You know, that's what the Olympics are great for: is making you deeply nationalized and rooting against other countries. And I don't know about you, but I have a hierarchy during the Olympics where it's like, okay, if 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 we're not in the diving competition, 
Um, or there's no way we're going to win. Well, if Canada's in it, okay, I'm going to root for Canada. Canada's on it. All right, I'm going to root for England. England's on it. All right, uh, who else is a a a, a long term ally? A- Anglophone, right? Yeah, yeah. Get get your World Book Encyclopedia and see see who the allies of the United States were right. in World War II. And that's who I'll root for. But yeah. I, I've never rooted for a Russian or a German, particularly not a German. No offense, Rolf. But I've never right, rooted for right. Germans in anything. Well, when we were young, there were two German teams, and so right. you you were sort of had permission to vote to root for the West Germans, who never seemed as good as the East Germans because they um, didn't have the the program of anabolic steroids. Well, well, that's it. You know, when they unified in the nineties, a part of me thought, oh, well, what are their Olympics team going to be like? Well, I mean, yeah, no, that that East German team was a machine in 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 terms of like um, optimizing cheating, I think. Right. Uh, but but to jump back a beat, you know, I. I had forgotten about the hostage crisis aspect to the 1980s um, hockey game, and I wonder if there was somewhat someone at some conservative think tank who, in the year 2014, is thinking Benghazi. You know, Benghazi could be the new hostage crisis if we if we can make Benghazi think you know enough of a of a national embarrassment, then then we can invent this new make America. You know, I just wonder sometimes, like who who studied the psychology of the hostage crisis as pertains to charismatic populist leaders who can save us from abstractions. I believe I, that was Don Jr.'s job. <laughs> maybe, maybe. And I, I don't want to. I don't want to drift in, into politics because the world is few, full of people um, talking about politics. But that cultural moment, um, I think it's easy to forget how many factors influenced the joy that went into winning that hockey game. Mm-hmm. Uh, hostage crises, Cold War. You know, the, the natural underdog college kids playing the the, the good as pro Russians. Right. right. Yeah, and I, you know, I as a kid, I always rooted for the underdog. I mean, I was a Oakland A's and a uh, Golden State Warriors fan. So, like my entire childhood was just losing okay. or, or and losing poorly, like, you know, going 56 and a and 112 or whatever it is, you know, or or you know, 20 and 62. Um but I've always I've always liked the underdog because it's a better narrative. Like I can watch any sport if like I can turn on a college football game and if there's a team down by 14 and, and it's, you know, East Carolina versus North Idaho state and East Carolina is down by 14, I will watch just to see if East Carolina can come back. Yeah. Um, I like that human drama. And I think that's for me, that's always what sports has been about is not so much the rooting interest in a particular city or a particular team, but I like to watch sports as a way to relax because it, you know, interesting sports has the dramatics and the flair of great literature. You know, the, the human struggle. The, the last World Series is a great example until Game 7 of every single pitch feeling like life or death. I'm not a Dodger fan and I'm not an Astros fan, but I could have watched those teams play for a month because they were so evenly matched and there was, you know, so much give and take back and forth. And that's what made it compelling. And my my wife Wendy, who you know is not a huge sports fan, she was like, "Turn it off, turn it off! I can't take it! I can't take it! I, I don't! I can't take it!" And it's not that she couldn't take the the game; it's just that she was she was getting riled up by it as well. And I I like I like to watch those things and have that emotion, knowing that at the end it's over, it's done. Mm. And that in the same way that I like to watch, you know, John Wick. Um, or that I like to write 
crime fiction where I have a character who steps into chaos and is an agent of change or an agent of mobilization or fixes the things that are wrong. It all sort of is part of one larger thing for me, I think, um, which is, you know, I, I like, I like to watch chaos and then I like chaos to have an ending. Yeah. And I guess there's sports is a very contained way for, for that to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think there are certain fandoms that play out over the course of one's life because certainly the A's got good at the end of the eighties. Right. So, right. yeah. Um, and they were good for a couple years when Billy Martin was, uh, was the manager. Um, you know, they, they, they'd be good every, like every six years or so they'd be good. So like they were good when I was 11 and they were good when I was 19 and, and then it was 10 years. And <laughs> I, I actually saw, um, I was on a plane recently. I've had a weird experience of late where I've been on planes cause I've been on a book tour and I've seen interesting people from my life. Um, or from the world, I'm like, oh my god! I was on a flight, and Billy Bean was on the flight, the general manager of the Oakland A's, and I'm a huge A's fan. Like, like that's my team is the Oakland A's, and I saw Billy Bean get on the flight, and I texted my wife, Billy Bean is on my plane, and she was like, just be cool, just be cool, don't lose it. And I was like, I, I, all right, and I didn't, I didn't talk to him or say anything. I just watched him. I was like, oh my god, that's Billy Bean. Um, and the other day, uh, Charlie Batch, the old backup quarterback oh, yeah. for the Steelers and Lions, he was on a flight of mine. Um, so I just keep seeing these like strange, um, you know, sports dumb folks on planes, and I feel like I'm the only person that would recognize Charlie Batch. Like, oh my, like I, I know all the backup quarterbacks in the NFL, and so Charlie Batch is in front of me. Oh my god, you, you. Won twenty five games as a starting quarterback, or you know whatever it is. That that's an interesting situation to negotiate. I through random chance um, last Monday, I happened to have a field pass at the Seahawks Falcons game, the Monday oh, night wow. game. And this this is actually the third NFL game I've been to. I've been to tons of of, of Major League Baseball games, but this is mm-hmm. for whatever reason. Uh, I haven't been to too many NFL games, but I have a, a student from this summer who has a box, and she was able to allow me a, a field pass. And I was super shy, in part because I'm not a huge Seahawks fan. I like the Seahawks, mm-hmm. um, but I didn't want to be like the Seahawks fan who's like pushing, shoving, you know, eight-year-olds right. out of the way to meet the players. <laughs> who are all like 25 years younger than you. Right. Well, well that's it, too. I mean, that, that, that's a weird relationship as the, as the fan in his 40s who sort of has this well-sir relationship to the 28-year-old who's the, you know, well, Mr. Hosmer, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's such a pleasure to meet you. Uh, but we were talking. I met Earl Thompson the third's mother. Uh, uh, Thomas. Thomas. I'm, so, I'm sorry, Thomas the third, uh, the defensive player for the for the uh, the Seahawks. And I was nervous around her, but like she was happy. She was like, oh, yeah, of course I'll I'll pose for a picture with you. And she ended up hanging up had out in our box for a while. But I'm wondering because you brought up John Wick. One of my earlier podcast episodes uh, was with with the writer Jessica Crispin. We spent the whole time talking about her obsession with Keanu Reeves. And, oh, I have a and, deep obsession with Keanu Reeves. <laughs> right. Well, actually, maybe maybe we should have a sequel and we can Skype you into it. But um, so like one third of the entire episode was like postulating on on her elevator approach to Keanu Reeves, and she was actually having none of it. I mean, I think that the hypothetical relationship uh, with Keanu Reeves is is much more enjoyable than any possible right. human interaction with him. But but how would you navigate that? I mean, obviously 
you were you you restrained yourself and didn't talk to to, to Billy Bean, um, and and certainly maybe there's Todd Goldberg fans out there who are trying to decide whether or not to to approach you. And actually, with Jessa, we talked about this. You know, like the she's here. Well, have him buy me a drink, and it's like okay, right. problem solved. Uh, so, like, do you approach athletes in this situation, or have you completely disciplined yourself? Um, a little bit of both, and you know. It is it is weird sort of being on the other side of it. You know, I go to these events and there's, you know, there's 100 people there to get me to sign an autograph. And that's like, that's a weird experience. And so I like I'm always cognizant when I'm at my events and all these people have shown up that, I, you know, like this is a really big, exciting time for me. And then these people are here and they just want to they just want me to write my name in their book. What a weird thing. And so, you know, I always try to, to close the distance between the two of us and let them know that I appreciate them being there and that this is an unusual experience for all of us. But, man, this is cool. Um, so there's that aspect of it, which is, you know, being book famous is minor league famous to being. Well, I think Nick Hornby Hornby said being book famous is like not being famous. But no, it's it's not. (laughs) It's not at all. Um, But so I've got I've got two things. So one is that my uncle used to be part owner of the Sonics back when they were still the Sonics. And so I would go I'd be up in Seattle and I'd go and I'd sit with him on the court. And I remember one time I I went to uh, see the Sonics play the Cavaliers and LeBron was, you know, like an inch away from me. And I, for some reason, got it in my mind that I should talk shit to him because I was on the floor. And so I I said something and he just turned and looked at me like, what the fuck is wrong with you? And he was 19, you know, and I'm like, oh, I'm talking shit to a 19 year old. And then my uncle's like, I'm the owner of the team. We don't talk shit to the opposing players. <laughs> right, right, right. That's right. right. Um, so, you know, I, in my, for years and years also, my mom dated a lot of athletes. She dated, like, if you were a punter on the, um, on the Raiders and you weren't Ray Guy, like my mom dated you. He was a badass punter, by the way. He was, um, she, my mom dated a guy named Mike Mercer, who was uh, the place kicker for the Raiders for a few years. Um, but like, you know, she dated guys on the Oakland Stompers, all, all kinds of stuff. But, um, so I'd met a lot of athletes in my life and, you know, meeting your heroes kind of sucks because they can only disappoint you unless they're super cool. Um, what puts a lot of pressure on you when you're the author there to sign a book? But that's that's right. <laughs> uh, you right. know, like I, you can only fuck it up. But go ahead. The the coolest thing that ever happened in in this regard to me, um, this was in the 1990s, and I was in Santa Monica Place Mall, and I was wearing an Oakland A's hat, and this guy walks up to me and says, "Hey, are you an A's fan?" And I said. Yeah, this was it was 1997, and I said, "Yeah," and I'm thinking oh, some, someone's going to talk shit to me while I'm shopping for Christmas at the Santa Monica Place Mall. And he's like, "Well, Mark McGuire just went down that escalator," and I was like, oh. "And I look, and sure enough, Mark McGuire is going down an escalator." And I'm like, "Oh my god!" And this was before he'd broken the record or anything. Um, you know, he had hit like 58 home runs that season for the A's. Um, and had just been traded to the Cardinals that year. Like that was the year he split between the A's and the Cardinals. So I rushed down the escalator and he and the woman that he is with go into Victoria's Secret. And I'm like, oh, there's no way for me to go into Victoria's Secret and not like <laughs> not be obvious <laughs> about this whole situation. So we are like 27 years old, just to yeah, clarify. 20, 26 years old. Okay. Time. 1997. Um, 
and I'm like, ah, God, I gotta, like, he was my favorite baseball player at the time. Um, and so I'm like, all right, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna chill out here, you know, in the food court and act cool. And at the time, like, you know, Mark McGuire was, was a superstar, but he wasn't what he became, you know, he, there was still a year before he became a sensation. So like 15 minutes later, he and the woman he's with walk out of Victoria's Secret and they're walking away from me. And I was like, oh my God. And they're like, they're getting further and further away from me. And I'm like, ah, 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 ah. and so I say, Mr. McGuire. <laughs> I'm like, where's this voice coming from? And he doesn't turn around. And so I say, Mr. McGuire. I'm like, oh, fucking Christ. And the woman he's with turns around and she says, Mark, that guy is calling you. And I'm like, and I'm, like, I got bags in my hands and I'm wearing an Oakland A's hat. And I'm just like, eh. and he turns around and he sees me and he says, Hey, how you doing? And I said, uh, I'm doing great. How are you doing? He says, I'm doing great. And I, I walk up. I said, I just wanted to, uh, I just wanted to shake your hand and tell you that I appreciate the way you play ball. And he goes, Oh, okay. And so we shake hands and then he's like, where are you from? You know, how long have you been an A's fan for? And we sit and we have this conversation for like, in my mind, it's like two hours, but it was probably like eight minutes. But like a very cordial conversation standing in the food court of the Santa Monica Place Mall. And so at the end of the conversation, he says, well, did you want me to sign something? And I said, no. It's like, you don't want an autograph or anything? I was like, no, I mean, I just, I just want to tell you that I like the way you play ball. And he said, Oh, okay. And he walks off. So that happens since 1997. And it's like, I couldn't believe it. I wet myself. It was great. So a year later, about, uh, I guess it's actually nine months, um, Wendy and I were on our honeymoon. And I had, I think it was the first issue of ESPN, the magazine with me. And I'm sitting in the bathroom <laughs> at the Weston in Maui, reading this interview with Mark McGuire. And they say to him in the interview, you know, what, what do you think of people coming up and wanting your autograph now, and, you know, wanting things from you? And he said, you know, I, I don't really get it. I just, I appreciate it when someone walks up to me in a mall and says they appreciate the way I play ball. And wow. I was like, oh, he's talking about me! <laughs> so you're patient zero in, in this whole... <laughs> he's talking about me! And then I was pretty sure we could be best friends. Like, I was like, I should have asked him if he wanted to hang out or if he wanted my number. Or <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah, th th there's the hypothetical friendship with the right. with the uh, with the, the desired person. Uh, yeah. So that like that's the one time where I've gone up to someone and like I, it didn't feel weird. But, you know, I I periodically see Steve Garvey where I live. He doesn't live very far from me. So I'll see him on, on the street. Um, and then recently I was uh, I was actually at my MFA residency and I saw the welterweight fighter, Tim Bradley, who lives out here and I uh, had the following conversation with him. He walked in and I said, Hey champ. And he said, how you doing, man? Good to see you. <laughs> Maybe I wonder if there's like a special manual of like a celebrity management where you, one, don't, don't do what Todd does. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, I mean, that's the very, Hey man, good to see you. I mean, and of course, a given a given celebrity or sports star is going to be feeling at different moods at different times of day. So there's probably someone who gets blown off by their their favorite sports star just because he was in a fight with his mom or something. And then there's other people who are going to have a great um, conversation with the with the sports star because they were just coked up that weekend, you know. Right. So, um, and I just wonder if there's if there's a way that 
people come to manage these situations? I mean, because you and I both do book signings. I, I presume for you, as it is with me, it's just nice to talk to people who appreciate the work you do. Absolutely. But, but there's got to be a tipping point, like sort of the Stephen King factor or whatever, where there comes a point where you just can't engage with everybody. Um, and, and in a way, like the autograph, I, I just wrote a book about souvenirs. It's coming out next March. And in a way... Oh souvenirs are like autographs of places you know mm-hmm. that you go to a place and you have this 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 experience that's that's very exotic or very exciting for you because you can get a souvenir of sorts from a concert you know you keep the mm-hmm. your, your Lollapalooza one ticket or whatever and uh and and so in a way you you take that rock from the beaches of Normandy or the the Eiffel Tower, Tower keychain from the gift shop because it, it it's the autograph of the place. And so I think autographs which I it feels like they're being replaced by selfies. I don't know that empirically, but it feels like yeah, the, the arm around the shoulder selfie has replaced the autograph because it's just simpler and then like like who cares, you know, there's just this scrawl, there's something very verifiable about the selfie. But it goes down to the fact that you're a person with all of this going back to the beginning of this conversation you're this person with all of this emotional investment in this 26-year-old athlete. <laughs> yeah. you, you, you interact with them for 30 seconds to five minutes, and then you want something, you know, that, that somehow right. validation. And so it, it feels like that is um, – although you re-engineered this with Mark McGuire, with Mark McGuire and the, uh, the non-autograph situation. You're trying to validate again that that emotional relationship to fandom that you have, right? By, you know, you, um, actually, and part of my book is that like locks of Keats' hair went around England for years. Like, uh, oh, yeah. not, oh, not Keats. No, it was the, um, no, actually, actually, locks of Keats' hair did. He Keats wrote a poem about seeing a lock of Milton's hair, mm-hmm. and now they have a lock of of, of Keats's hair into the in the in the library at, at Oxford, and so That's I creepy. I think mass <laughs> mass culture has it's totally creepy, but, but mass culture has rendered a level of creepiness to all celebrity worship. We're like in the yeah. in the. In the 18th century, it was one thing to ask for a lock of hair. Now, running to Mark McGuire at the mall, you probably will not ask him for a lock of hair. Um, and so I, I think somebody needs to write the playbook for, for commemorating these emotional moments <laughs> with famous people in the 21st century. Um, well, and, you know, for me, I think just even going back to the essay that we were speaking about originally um, – you know, the uh, emotional investment in an athlete or in a sport has, uh, when I was young, was replacing an emotional investment with someone who was incapable of love. So for me, my, I had terrible parents who were not good people and were incapable of showing love. I find emotional attachment in in Ray Boom Boom Mancini. And then I see him kill a guy, you know, like these are leaps that I can make on my own without giving someone $30 to tell me it's true, <laughs> um, where, you know, all of a sudden this thing that I really was interested in, this fighter has now done this horrible thing. And then for the rest of my life, and this is true, whenever I saw a dead person, I thought of Dooku Kim, which is what the, the essay is about is being at my mother's bedside when she died and remembering seeing Dooku Kim. Um, like that, that shocked the system of realizing that the athletes that you follow or the things that you're invested in are not in fact fictional, that they are in fact real and have foibles and problems and issues themselves. I think that's why an adult can't suddenly become a fan of something because you know that there's a person 
when you're 10 or 11 years old or nine years old or whatever it is when you become invested in the sport, um, it might as well be Wiley e. Coyote being chased by, by Bugs Bunny. It's just a thing that, that doesn't seem to exist as human beings. But now, you know, we know all about the personal lives of everyone that we're interested in. Um, you know, we follow them on Twitter. We, you know, we hear their, their quotes, you know, they, they, they can't ever just be what that fictional version. I think, you know, I think about this a lot as it relates to, um, athletes as activists now and what we expect of athletes and all the NFL players kneeling and all this stuff and, and how it became this, you know, on the flip side, a conservative thing of they hate America and all these things where it was easier for these athletes when they were anonymous in doing these things. But now you can find out everything you want to know about these athletes and some stranger on the internet can pinpoint, well, your cousin is this or your mother is that and what you're standing for is hypocrisy or whatever that um, that takes the athlete out of that realm of fantasy figure now and makes them more like us in a way that their athleticism could never make it easy for us to identify with them. Well, I think it used to be the, the, the narrative aspect of sports, and especially for men, I hate to be too gendered for this, but it's, it's something <laughs> we grow up with. It, it, there's an intensity to it, and it, it is fantasy until it becomes real. And usually that's not a problem, or at least it's positive for athletes until you're Bill Buckner, right? Mm -hmm. And then all of a right. sudden, it, it, that's a completely narrative reason why his life was was thrown into into ruin of sorts for a few years. Is that he played, a, and it wasn't even a, a strategic thing. There were other reasons why the Red Sox right. ultimately lost that game, but Bill Buckner was nailed to the cross to mm -hmm. die for the sins of of that postseason. And I think that. And you could disagree with me, but we've come to the point where because we have sort of this granular micro level attention to the lives of all the athletes we follow, then we can Bucknerfy them. Yeah. Uh, uh, that that you know if 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 we're a conservative person and and we don't think that the uh, given athletes um, beliefs fit our narrative of how sports should be, then suddenly you can um, sort of take the, the the character assassination uh, route right. of of you know instead of and actually this is a problem in, in general is that the the world of ideas has become ad, ad hominem you know that that instead of disagreeing with an idea on twitter then you dis, you tear down a person on twitter for example right. um and and that's what athletes are up against that would be interesting i don't know maybe this uh, it's not a 30 for 30 um <laughs> I, I i have a friend who, who who's a producer for 30 for 30 and he's he's like yeah just Stop giving me ideas. You know, we have plenty of ideas already. I think every sports fan who, who who has a tangential thought thinks it's good for 30 for 30. But just the idea of the what's it like to manage fandom and manage that attention in the year 2018 uh, versus in 1978. Yeah, well, I mean, I think if you're an offensive lineman, it's probably easy because no one knows what you look like. But if you're Tom Brady, it's a little bit more difficult. Yeah, yeah. You know? Um, I, since we've sort of ended on a poignant note, I have a little note to myself to talk to you about indoor soccer, but, it, but, it, but, it, but it feels like, uh, you know, after talking about emotional resonance and the death of your mom and all this stuff that maybe indoor soccer, mustaches, mullets, and oiled legs from 1986. Oh man. Might... I do have great love of major indoor soccer league. I love that the league put major in their name when they were so minor. 
Right. Well, I mean, they were, that was after Nassau. There was a time. Right. Now, again, we're going back. I don't know if we want to talk for another 90 minutes, but my hometown, Wichita, Kansas, um, where the sports arena, you could literally smell cow manure, had a franchise in the MISL. They were the Green Bay Packers of indoor soccer. They were the Wichita Wings. Yes, and, good and, God. And that was... Just as a kid, you know, I mean, that's those are my meeting a player because those guys came out and did like soccer clinics at right. uh, at uh, at schools and stuff. But uh, anyway, uh, ladies and gentlemen, our next episode will be entirely dedicated to indoor soccer. <laughs> We're going to go back to the year 1986 and talk about nothing but indoor soccer. Our third episode will be Keanu Reeves. And oh. our fourth episode will be, we didn't even talk about uh, music, which I, I think it's good we focused on sports because we were able to dive a little bit deeper. But uh, I was obsessed with Jane's Addiction in, in about in 1989, 1990. And Todd was in a video that I probably watched on VHS 500 times wearing a mock turtleneck. <laughs> this is the nexus at which Steve Jungle and Dave Navarro meet. <laughs> right. Wow. I, I want both of them as guests on this podcast. I want Steve Jungle, the great goalkeeper for who did he play no, he for? Was, he was a, a striker for the New York. Arrows. Oh no! Oh no! Was Slobo was the goalkeeper? Yes, uh, yes. Slobodin, what was his name? Oh god! Yeah, all the horrible MISL players. It was full of Eastern Europeans and and like Peruvians with nicknames yes. like like Batata or something. It, it was a wonderful, wonderful world. But. Um, we can't, we can't do a four-hour <laughs> podcast that covers the 1980 Olympics and Steve's Jungle and Dave Varro and, um, you know, Perry Farrell's six-pack from 1989. So The old heroin six-pack. <laughs> so uh, for now, we're going to sign out. I swear uh, I'll bring you back at some point. Uh, Todd, uh, when, what's your next project? What's, what's on deck for you? Um, well, I'm going to write a sequel to Gangster Nation. Um, I think I'll probably write another book with my good friend Brad Meltzer also, uh, a sequel to The House of Secrets. Um, I think I'm going to write uh, some essays. Um, but I don't know quite yet what the next thing is. I know all of those things are going to happen. I just don't know in what order they're going to happen. But mostly I'm just happy to be here talking with you. And I, I feel like I could do this every week. So let me know when it becomes Rolf and Todd. <laughs> on DBA. <laughs> awesome. Our, our first recurring guest, maybe co-host by February. We'll see. So thanks a lot, Todd. Thank you. Appreciate it. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including the books, essays, TV shows, and all manner of sports marginalia can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com slash deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow with research support by my nephew, Luke Van Tassel. Music is by my other nephew, Cedar Van Tassel. Jan Futterman does the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. Mm-hmm.